The saxophone has 22 keys top to bottom, a little bit more than two per finger. Newer horns have a high F sharp key, which gives them a neat 23. Most saxes go down to a low B flat, but most baritone saxes go down to a low A, which means berry players get 24 keys. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I like playing saxophones with 22 keys, saxophones with 23 keys, and sometimes, if I'm lucky, saxophones with 24 keys. However many keys my saxophone may have, this podcast has only one key, my listeners who support Strong Songs in so many wonderful ways. If you want to play a key role in the creation of Strong Songs, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs to find out how you can do that. The saxophone is going to feature heavily on this episode as we are diving back into a classic jazz recording from the 1960s that features alto, tenor, and baritone sax. And if you want to hear a Barry sax low A, well, you're actually about to hear one. So let's bring in the horns and listen for the low note on your right. Music is all about improvisation. Some aspect of most jazz recordings was invented on the spot, with a given jazz composition acting as both a work in its own right as well as a framework or a container for the spontaneous compositions of the individual musicians who may be playing it. That immediacy is what makes jazz an exciting music to listen to, particularly if you catch a band live, but it can also make jazz a bit intimidating. To a newcomer, jazz recording can feel like overhearing your neighbors having a heated conversation in a language that you don't speak. What they're saying is clearly interesting, and you can even pick up some of the contours, the emotional dynamics, just from the tone of their voices. But unless you're at least a little bit familiar with the language, it all starts to blend together eventually, and it kind of becomes meaningless noise. Here on Strong Songs, I've been working on a long-term plan to help more listeners out there start to learn the basics of the language of jazz. I've done a few episodes on classic instrumental jazz recordings, each episode focused on a different aspect of how a jazz record works. Back in year one, I did an episode on Bobby Timmons' Monin, as recorded by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, which you're hearing now. That was kind of a basic primer. I talked about how a jazz small group works, how a tune is usually assembled, solo order, small group arranging, and the basics of improvisation. It also gave me a chance to talk about trumpeter Lee Morgan, who I want to remind everyone was 20 years old when he played on this record. That episode was hopefully a good first point of purchase for anyone looking to get a toehold in the world of classic small group jazz. In year two, I changed things up with an album that, for all its huge stylistic differences from Monin, was actually recorded just a year later, in 1959. 
The Year 2 episode on So What, as recorded by Miles Davis's legendary sextet on Kind of Blue, spent a lot of time talking about the careers of the individual players on the record as they unfolded after they recorded Kind of Blue. Miles, Cannonball, Train, Evans, PC, and Jimmy Cobb each played their own individual roles on the recording and also went on to make beautiful music as band leaders, but it was in this moment, on these extremely simple modal song sketches, that they came together to create something incredible. So that brings us to year three and what I think will be the conclusion of our classic jazz trilogy, an album recorded a couple of years after those first two that brought together a group of wildly different improvisers and set them loose on a collection of carefully considered, densely arranged compositions. This track is the opening number from that album and it features four totally distinct improvised solos that, combined with the beautifully arranged song itself, exemplify that synthesis that's at the heart of jazz. That mixture of restraint and freedom, of composition and improvisation, an agreed-upon baseline that opens up an exploration of just how distinct and personal an improviser's sound can be. Today we're going to be talking about Stolen Moments, the opening track from Oliver Nelson's 1961 jazz classic, The Blues and the Abstract Truth. Few jazz recordings present as beautiful and stark a contrast between the carefully constructed collective and the fiercely independent individual, and I'm excited to dig into it and show you how it all fits together. So I do see this episode as the third entry in a series, and while you won't necessarily have to have listened to those first two episodes, the ones on the Jazz Messengers is Monin and the one on Miles Davis's So What, to appreciate this one, some of the concepts I talked about in those episodes won't get as much play in this one. I'm assuming you already know how a jazz small group performance works, that the whole ensemble starts by playing a melody or a head together before playing a repeating song form over and over while individual players take turns soloing, and that the rhythm section, in this case piano, bass, and drums, collectively improvises their accompaniment to each individual solo within the confines of the song's chord progression. I'm also assuming that you understand that this group, assembled by bandleader Oliver Nelson, is made up of individual artists, several of whom were bandleaders in their own right, and all of whom turned up all over the place on other jazz records of the era. You get the fundamentals, so this time we're going to focus a little bit more on the specifics. On this episode, I really want to focus on that contrast between the collective and the individual. Stolen Moments is a great song to do that for a few different reasons. It features a beautifully arranged melody that exists in a sort of parallel dimension to the world of the solos, and of the four solos that were recorded in the final take, the three horn solos are dramatically different in style and approach, and it really gives you a sense of just how different the musicians were from one another, despite how beautifully they work together when they're playing together on the melody. which means that this episode is finally going to give me a chance to talk about Jazz Flute. 
So we're going to start by dissecting Nelson's painstakingly composed melody, and then we'll pick apart three solos to get a sense of just how differently three different horn players can approach soloing over the same chord progression. You've already heard excerpts from Freddie Hubbard's trumpet solo, and now you're hearing alto saxophonist Eric Dolphy on the flute. And we'll also talk about Nelson's fascinating, carefully considered tenor sax solo, which might as well be from a different planet than Dolphy's wild, flighty approach to the same chord progression. First up, some background and vital stats. Stolen Moments was written and arranged by Oliver Nelson. It's the opening track off of his 1961 album, The Blues and the Abstract Truth, which is widely seen as his greatest album and is definitely a jazz classic, sort of a bridge between the late 50s hard bop era and the mid 60s post bop era. Not to get all jazz genre about it, because genre can be helpful, but it can also just get in the way. A jazz record is only as good as the players on it, and Nelson put together a really great lineup for this one. It's a septet, so there's seven players in the in the ensemble. Uh, there are four horns, piano, bass, and drums. His arrangements are really clever. He actually he always makes it sound like there are more musicians playing than usual, and a septet is just a little bit bigger, like a sextet is what was on kind of blue. A quintet is pretty common with just two horns, piano, bass, and drums. Actually, the version of the Jazz Messengers that played Monin was a quintet, so we've actually gone quintet, sextet, and now septet. When you've got four horns, you can just kind of do more with the ensemble, and as you'll see, Nelson is really creative with the four horns that he's got. This is Hoedown, my other favorite tune on the record, which manages to make a four horn ensemble feel ten times bigger just through creative arrangement. Four horns are the great Freddie Hubbard on trumpet, Eric Dolphy on alto sax, and on Stolen Moments flute, Oliver Nelson himself playing tenor sax, and George Barrow on the Barry sax. Barrow doesn't take a single solo on this record, and to me that kind of makes him the unsung hero of Blues and the Abstract Truth. His fourth voice and his ability to drop down low on the Barry sax into that low register, that's what makes these arrangements sound so rich and full, so he might not get to solo, but he is still a crucial part of the sound of the record. This is a tune called Butch and Butch from later in the record, and it's a good example of how Nelson likes to split the four horns into pairs. The alto and trumpet start with the melody in unison up top, and then the berry and tenor saxophones join with their own separate part down low. is so good and those horn figures rule they're the kind of figures that you'd normally hear in a much bigger band or even a big band which is you know an actual specific type of jazz ensemble a big band has four trumpets four trombones five saxes and a rhythm section and plays big band music the next jazz instrumental episode i do is actually going to be a big band recording and that will mean that strong songs as jazz episodes will just slowly feature bigger and bigger ensembles so then after the big band ensemble i guess we'll have to do like metropole orchestra or something i don't know we'll, we'll figure it out as we go 
Rico. On Blues and the Abstract Truth, Oliver Nelson's large, small group is able to do some pretty big bandish kinds of tricks where the sections kind of play off of one another and harmonize with one another. And it really is all about that fourth horn. It's all about George Barrow. Three horn horn sections are super common in jazz. The jazz sextet usually has three horns. Maybe it's trumpet, tenor, and alto sax, like on Kind of Blue. Maybe it's trumpet, tenor, and trombone, like in some famous versions of the jazz messengers. But if you add a fourth horn, you can split the horns up into two groups of two. And that lets them harmonize with one another, but separately. And that gives an arranger a lot more possibilities than they'd have with just one fewer horn. In fact, I use a similar technique when arranging for the five-horn horn section that plays during the new Strong Songs theme song. The horns play together for most of the arrangement, but then at the end, they split into two smaller groups, tenor and trumpet first, and alto, trombone, and baritone sax echoing them. It makes a medium-sized horn section sound bigger than it is, particularly when all the horns finally come together for the final figure. Small group horn arranging is an interesting discipline, in part because there isn't a set ensemble format, so you can get creative with it. Trumpet, alto, tenor, berry, that's not really an established ensemble format or anything. Oliver Nelson just figured those four instrumental textures were what he needed to create a full sound, and he was right. Like, just listen to how rich that sounds. Of course, that's just the horns. The rhythm section is fantastic on this record, too, and actually has a few familiar faces in it. Roy Haynes is playing drums. He's a drumming legend, but he hasn't featured on anything that we've talked about on Strong Songs before. But the bass and piano chairs are filled by Paul Chambers and Bill Evans, respectively, both players who were also on Miles Davis's Kind of Blue session just a couple of years prior. This is Bill Evans' solo from later in the recording. When I talk about how it's fun to pay attention to the personnel on various jazz records, this is what I'm talking about. You'll pick up the record jacket for Blues in the Abstract Truth, and you'll look at the lineup, and then you'll immediately start to make these connections. Oh, Paul Chambers. He was on Kind of Blue along with Bill Evans. He also played bass on John Coltrane's 1960 classic record Giant Steps. Freddie Hubbard, well, he was actually in the Jazz Messengers. He took over the trumpet chair for Lee Morgan, who played on Monin. Roy Haynes would later join Paul Chambers and play on some classic sessions with Coltrane as well. And the wheel of jazz keeps on spinning. So you remember how I was talking about big bands? Well, The Blues and the Abstract Truth wasn't actually the first time that Nelson recorded Stolen Moments. The song actually debuted as The Stolen Moment on a big band album a year earlier, a 1960 record by the tenor player Eddie Lockjaw Davis called Train Whistle. It was Nelson's arrangement, and it featured a much larger ensemble. It was a big band. Like I said, that's an actual format of a band, many, many more horn players. But it was a lot of the same players that Nelson would use a year later on The Blues and the Abstract Truth. It's a very different recording, you can probably already hear the differences, it's kind of lazier, more laid back, and, well, it has a lot more horns. 
I'd say I prefer the version on Blues in the Abstract Truth, though Train Russell is a really cool record and worth a listen if you can find a copy. If you're into jazz arranging at all, it's really interesting to look at how Nelson pared down his own big band arrangement to make it work with a third as many horns without sacrificing the depth of the sound. So let's get into it. We're going to start by going more in depth with that melody, then we'll move on to the solos and look at how each one represents a dramatically different approach to the same tune and the same chord progression. Let's start with the way the ensemble is set up. Over on the left, the alto sax and the trumpet are playing the top two notes of each chord. On the right, the berry and the tenor saxophone are playing the bottom two notes. That'll become a little clearer as we get a bit further into the tune. They're all playing the same figure here. They're kind of playing one chord together, but that's kind of where they're arranged in the mix. We're in the key of C here, Stolen Moments is in the key of C minor, and here at the start, Evans and Chambers on the piano and the bass have a pretty restrained role. They're pretty restrained throughout the entire recording, but they're very restrained at the beginning. They're just playing pedal tones in unison on C. Remember, a pedal tone is just where you play kind of a low, single note that stays the same. They're playing pedal tones on C, just opening up a nice layer of support for all those chords in the horns. You can think of them as kind of a nice, king-sized bed that the horn harmony can just lie on. Roy Haynes is playing a similarly restrained role on the drums. He can be a ferocious drummer when he wants to be. That dude can really, really swing. But Stolen Moments called for a deft touch. It still swings, he just plays very gently, and he definitely provided a deft touch on this recording. He's playing with brushes, just marking swing time in a very straightforward way here at the beginning, and he doesn't get that much busier throughout the entire recording. One of the easiest ways for a drummer to change the sound of their drums is to hit the drums with something other than just a normal drumstick. So that's why you always see drummers carrying a big stick bag around with them at gigs. It'll be a bag just filled with all different sized drumsticks, but also soft-headed mallets or bundles of tiny sticks that are called bundles, and usually a pair of retractable wire brushes. Now I'm not a great drummer and I'm definitely not a great jazz drummer, but here's how it works just sort of in general. You have two brushes, you use the first one to sort of stir steadily across the head of the snare drum, which gets you the steady, washy sound. So then with the other brush, usually the one in your right hand, you play a similar swing feel to the splang, splang, alang, splang, alang that you'd play on the ride cymbal, you're just doing it with the brush also on the snare drum. Haynes is doing both of those things, and he's also using his foot to close the hi-hat steadily on two and four. I actually talked about brushes on last year's episode about Bjork's Hyper Ballad. That tune used brush snare to great effect, super creative and wonderful sound. So you know, brushes aren't only used on jazz tunes by jazz drummers, though they have some pretty great applications in jazz music because they allow for such a delicate touch. 
So listen to the intro to the tune again and just pay attention to what Haynes is doing over there on the right. He's marking time with the brushes on the snare and he's also laying on that hi-hat. Steadily on two and four and he's going to do that for this entire recording. So let's get into the melody, the harmony, and all that good notey stuff. Stolen Moments, like I said, is in the key of C minor, and as you might guess from the album name, The Blues and the Abstract Truth, Stolen Moments is a blues. It's actually a certain type of jazz tune where the melody has a slightly different form from the solos, so they're kind of separate, though they're related, and both are based on the C minor blues. I did a pretty lengthy breakdown of the blues on my year two episode about Prince's song Kiss, but just in case you didn't hear that episode, though you should listen to it, it was a pretty fun episode, uh, just in case you didn't listen, the blues isn't just a genre of music, the way that there are blues musicians, you know, Muddy Waters and B.B. King are blues musicians, the way you can find records under the blues category at a record shop. That's not the only thing that blues means. In music, it's also a technical term that relates to song form. A song can be a blues, just like it can be an AABA song with a bridge or a through-composed song that never stays put, doesn't repeat sections. A blues is actually, it's probably the most common and also important song form in American music. It's derived from the African-American musical tradition, and you've heard hundreds of blueses in your life, even if you didn't realize that you were listening to a blues song form. A basic blues is 12 bars long and revolves around three three chords, the one, the four, and the five. Those chords are typically dominant seventh chords, which means they have a major third and a minor seventh. Stolen Moments is a C minor blues, which is a little bit different, but I'll talk about that in a second. The form is broken into three groups of four. There's four bars of the one chord, this is the one chord, then two bars of the four chord, and then two bars of the one chord, then for the last group of four you get a bar of the five bar of the four and two bars of the one chord. There are a billion famous tunes that follow blues song form from Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good to Charlie Parker's Now's the Time to Miles Davis's Freddie Freeloader from Kind of Blue to Little Richard's Tutti Fruity to Zeppelin's Rock and Roll, Tracy Chapman's Gimme One Reason, That's a Blues, U2's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, That is a Blues, and actually Prince's Kiss, also a Blues. Sorry, I'm never going to get sick of that intro. Anyway, once you learn what the blues is, and you maybe play a little bit of blues yourself, you'll start hearing it everywhere. It's all about that one chord that stays put for a little bit, and then moves to the four chord. The minute you hear that, it'll just tick the, ah, this is a blues thing in your brain. Also the 12-bar song form. While not a prerequisite, like there are 16-bar blueses, there are plenty of blueses that don't have 12 bars. The minute you hear a song that's 12 bars long, it's probably a blues. Give me one reason to stay here. I'll turn right back around You know, people make fun of the 90s for a lot of reasons, but in the 90s, Tracy Chapman released that song and it was like a huge radio hit. I remember hearing that song on the radio when I was in high school. It's pretty cool that a song that good was just on the radio, this super straight ahead, incredibly great blues. Anyways, Tracy Chapman rules. Back to Oliver Nelson.
So I mentioned that this is a minor blues, that means kind of what it sounds like. Instead of being built out of dominant seventh chords with a major third and a flat seventh, a minor blues is built around minor seventh chords, so they have a minor third and a minor seventh. The one and the four chords are both minor, then the five chord in a minor blues is actually a dominant chord. In jazz at least, it's usually some got some altered chord tones, it's maybe got like a sharp nine or a flat thirteen, sharp five, that kind of thing. We'll get a little bit more into that as we go. The solos and solo moments are played over an extremely straightforward 12-bar C minor blues, but like I said, the melody is a little different, so let's just go through the form on the melody one time. They start here on this 4-bar intro, and then the melody starts right here on the 1. Still on the 1. Then it goes to the 4. Then back to the 1. Then it starts a chromatic build. It goes up, and up, and up, and up, and up, and back down. Then it repeats. Then they turn it around. Then back to the one. So from there, they just repeat the entire thing, again with no changes. If you were counting, you probably counted 16 bars, four more than they play during the solos, four more than I was talking about with that 12-bar blues form. It's all a straight-ahead blues for the first eight bars. It goes one, then to four, then back to one, and then they change things up. They begin that chromatic climb. It's kind of this song's signature move, and usually when you hear a 16-bar blues, which this song is during the melody, that's, it's at the five chord, it's at those last four bars where they kind of change things up and do something a little bit different, and that's definitely what Oliver Nelson was doing with Stolen Moments. I want to spend a bit of time on the initial melody, though, on those first eight bars, because it's an incredible example of horn arranging and how beautiful and interesting it can sound if you write with great care for a horn section. So to me, the melody on Stolen Moments is all about the lower voices and the inner voices in the horn section. Freddie Hubbard is on top on the trumpet, he's playing the melody, but the thing that makes this recording special is the lower three tones being played by Dolphy on alto sax, then Nelson on the lower tenor sax, and finally Barrow on the bottom on the Barry sax. You know, I kind of wish that George Barrow's name had been Barry, because then he would have been Barry Barrow on the bottom on the Barry sax, and 60 years after someone made this album, eh, someone might want to record a podcast about it, and they might have fun saying a sentence like that. Oh well, we can only dream what might have been. So we've established what the rhythm section is doing, they're playing very simple parts. I've gone and recreated the first melody statement on my own so that I can illustrate how cool those lower voices are. I don't play the trumpet, so I played the lead line on flute. If you take that top melody on its own, on flute, with no lower voices, you get this. It's a nicely constructed melody, not super wild on its own, but very tidy. Basically two variants of a single idea, starting the same and ending slightly differently. The first melodic statement goes up, then goes down and lilts quickly back up. The second statement goes up in the exact same way, and then it goes down and it ends by going down. 
Both melodic statements begin and end on the same note, a G, but the preceding shape of the melody changes how that G feels. The first statement climbs up to the G, and as a result it feels a little bit more unresolved. The second statement falls down onto the G, feels much more settled. If you want to think of the phrasing, make it a two-sentence paragraph, the second sentence developing an idea put forth by the first. There's a light and I see it every evening. There's a light and it calls my name. So now let's get to the lower voices. Nelson's arranged this part of the melody so that all four horns are playing very close to one another. It's a beautifully placed ensemble performance that really does make for a strong contrast with the super divergent solos that come after it. Each part follows the general contours of that top melody line, but they start in different places. They're often separated by thirds. This is just my rough transcription. I may have a couple of tones wrong in there, but I'm hearing the second part, the alto sax part, here. The third part, the tenor, is here. And the fourth part, the berry, is actually pretty close to the tenor part. It's down on the bottom. I don't have a berry sax yet anyways, um, but it's within the range of a tenor, so I played this on tenor as well. So that's how they sound individually, but the magic happens, of course, when you hear them all stacked on top of one another. It's nice, right? The horns are conveying so much harmonic information on their own, you can start to understand why Nelson had the piano and the bass playing so sparsely, just like a single note each. They're really just laying a bed for the song's harmony, which is all happening within the four horns. You can also start to see why horn players like this album. Okay, so now let's listen to the actual recording of that same part and really try to keep your ears open for those lower voices. The trumpet's easy to hear, you'll hear that up on the top, it's kind of over on the left. It's the top voice very clearly playing that top melody, but try to hear the saxophones and hear them individually if you can. They're really kind of this nice mix, but they rub up really close to one another underneath the trumpet and the whole thing combines to create this dense, lush, harmonic bloom. Alright, ears on, here we go. It's such good stuff and it really speaks to Nelson's strengths as an arranger. He's an incredible jazz arranger. There's a lot of harmony happening here too. He's moving through a pretty complex chord progression that goes well beyond the four chords in the C minor blues. The bass and the piano may be playing single notes, but there's a whole story and harmony being told here by the horns. I don't want to get too deep into any of that harmony. One thing though that I do think is pretty cool is that this phrase ends not on a C minor chord, even though the song is in C minor, it ends on a C major 7 chord. It's a striking sound to land on in the middle of a song that's otherwise so strongly in C minor. It's this bit of lush brightness that bursts out at the end of the phrase. Very cool. So from there, the second statement of the melody just moves up to the four chord, since remember that's what happens in a blues. The next thing after the one is the four chord, and it kind of just restates things up a fourth. The harmony is a little bit different, but the phrase is largely the same. 
and then it's back onto the one and it restates the melody again back down on the one chord in C. It's very tidy and very composed. After that, we're onto the second half of the melody, the next eight bars. It's the build-up section that makes up the whole second half. The horns split into subgroups here. The trumpet goes solo and takes the lead, repeating this two-note melody that just goes between C and E flat, which is the one and the minor third. So the piano actually lays out for this part, but the rest of the band, the bass and the horns, they're playing chords. They start on a D minor 11 kind of a thing, and then they just steadily move up in half steps. They go up from D minor 11, up in half steps, slowly until they get to G flat minor 11, and then they walk back down. So I talk a lot about the principle of contrary motion on this show. When two parts are written to move in opposition to one another, this is a great example of a parallel concept contrasting a static part with a dynamic part. The trumpet is the static part. It's staying put, just repeating that C to E flat over and over again. The rest of the band is very dynamic. They're swelling up and then back down again, moving in contrast to that static trumpet part. They then repeat that phrase, but the alto sax takes over the melody and the berry sax drops the octave. It's such subtle, carefully constructed stuff and really beautiful in that subtlety. Nelson has put every part exactly where he wants it. Every melody, every rhythm section part, inner voice and counter melody, they've all been placed just where Oliver Nelson wanted them to be. The word arranging gets used so much in music that it's easy to kind of just not really think about it. So and so arranged this. This was arranged by such and such. But when you picture Nelson arranging horns for Blues and the Abstract Truth, he is arranging them. Picture a person performing maybe a different kind of arranging. Carefully arranging a window display or a table spread or a family portrait. Everything is in its best light. The heights and the colors and the sounds are all bouncing off of one another to create a collective whole greater than the sum of its parts. The second time through the melody is identical to the first time, so just listen closely, drink it all in, try to hear those inner voices as this beautifully arranged ensemble prepares to break apart into a group of individual soloists. So here Stolen Moments has converted into its second form. It's now a 12-bar C minor blues that continues throughout the trumpet, flute, tenor, and piano solos until the whole ensemble comes back together at the end to restate the melody on that 16-bar melody form. 
I talked pretty in-depth about the mechanics of a jazz small group on the Monin episode. You definitely should listen to that. But a quick recap. Okay, so now that the melody is done, things get a lot looser, and this is very common in any jazz recording, especially small group recordings. Each soloist improvises their solo, so that means they're spontaneously coming up with everything that they play. It's spontaneous composition, and they're just following this 12-bar chord progression that repeats over and over and over the same 12 bars. One repetition is called a chorus. You're actually listening to me soloing on flute for one chorus on the C minor blues. So I'm making this up as I go, and I'm playing a single 12-bar chorus of the blues. So every soloist on this recording goes for four choruses except for Bill Evans on the piano. He goes last, and he only gets three which that's a common thing for whatever reason. At the end, rhythm section players always go after the horns, and a lot of times they get shorter solos, which is sort of a bum deal if you ask me. Bill Evans plays a really good solo on this, but that's just kind of how it worked. They were, I guess, playing behind all of the soloists, so, you know, maybe they get to do more playing than everybody else already. Anyways, Bill Evans gets a three-chorus solo. And, you know, come to think of it, I'm not actually going to be spending any time analyzing that solo, so I guess I'm part of the problem. Sorry, Bill, you're great. We'll get to your trio at some point down the road. The chords on this C minor blues are pretty straightforward. You've got four bars of C minor, then two bars of F minor, two more bars of C minor, and then you get a turnaround at the end, which is where things get a little bit more complicated. You get a bar of the two chord, a bar of the five chord, then a bar of the one, and then the final bar of those 12 bars in the blues is a bar of five again, which sets up a cadence to return back to the one at the start of the next chorus. That's kind of the turnaround bar. So those last four bars are a bit more complicated than they would be on a straightforward boogie-woogie blues like some of those examples I played. We'll talk a bit more about why that is in terms of the harmony in a minute. For now, I just want to get that 12-bar form in your ear. So let's listen along to Freddie Hubbard's first chorus, and I'll call out the chords as they change just so you can get your head around the form of the song. So we start on the one. Then we go to the four, and then back to the one, the two, the five, and the one, then the five, and back to the one. And here we're on the one, this is his second chorus, to the four, and so on. So Freddie Hubbard kicks this thing off. He is the consummate hard bop jazz trumpet player, one of the defining stylists of this whole era of jazz on the trumpet. He plays these incredible intricate lines with really great kind of metronomic time. He has a super strong melodic and harmonic sense. He's an extremely influential trumpet player. Almost any jazz trumpet player you know will have transcribed some Freddie solos. He has total command of the harmony and he moves through the chords in a really deliberate manner. For example, take what we just heard, the way he goes through that 2-5 turnaround at the end of his second chorus. He tosses off a bunch of lines like that in this solo. There are some really incredible ones in a little bit. He weaves through the changes in this beautiful, creative way that's super precise. With the disclaimer that I am definitely not enough of a piano player to really play a Freddie Hubbard double time 2-5 like a tempo, this is what it sounds like when I play it at speed on piano.
but if I slow it down, you can start to hear the notes a bit more clearly, and you can also pick up on the contours of the line. So this lick is taking place in the last four bars of the chorus, that's the 2-5-1 cadence at the end of the form. And like I mentioned, in a minor blues, the 2-5-1 at the end is a bit different than it would be in a major blues. Instead of a regular 2 minor 7 chord, which sounds like this, the 2 in a minor key is a minor 7 flat 5 chord, which just has a flat 5 in addition to being a minor 7 chord, and that sounds like this. Then it goes to the dominant chord, but instead of being a plain dominant chord, you know, one, three, five, seven, natural nine, which sounds like this, in minor, the five dominant chord is usually an altered dominant, which is still a dominant chord, still has the root, still has the third, the flat seventh, but tones like the fifth, ninth, eleventh, and thirteenth can all be altered, which means they can be raised or lowered. There are a bunch of variants on altered dominant, you know, but when you hear like a G7 sharp nine chord or an A7 flat 13, those are types of alterations, those are altered chord tones. And for our purposes, we're gonna go with a G7 sharp nine chord. With a couple of exceptions, Freddie has built his entire melody, that whole lick, out of a single scale. It's the A-flat melodic minor scale. Some people will call that a G super Locrian scale. That name kind of gives me a kick. Um, I'm not going to freak anyone out any further by going deeper into the harmony of altered dominant chords, but basically, he's using the scale that you're hearing behind you. He's occasionally adding a D natural or a chromatic passing tone, and he's using those tricks to sculpt it into this extremely melodic line. Now he doesn't just play the scale up and down, He sometimes he plays arpeggios there at the beginning, he doubles back on himself later, he inserts some chromatic passing tones, but he's basically using this scale to build this line. when he puts his particular articulation and swing on it, it sounds like this. So those are the building blocks, and that's what he builds with them. Let's go through Freddy's next 12 bars and look at how he tackles the third of his four choruses on this tune. Alright, here comes the start of the chorus. So his first phrase starts early, he hits that G and he just sits on it playing quarter notes just on that G, just sitting there. It's about as minimal as you can get, he's just sitting on the five, and that opens up space for some nice interplay with the rhythm section. Bill Evans fills in some space on the piano, remember he's improvising his accompaniment as well, he's playing sympathetically to what he hears Freddie do, he plays a nice little figure, and he kind of holds it out just like Freddie does so his accompaniment mimics the contour of what the trumpet is playing. And this is also a rare moment on this recording when Roy Haynes adds a little thump to his sound. He hits the kick drum, which he does a couple of times here just as an added accent. It 
it's really worth keeping your ear open for that kind of thing. Your ear will naturally be drawn to the soloist on jazz recordings like this, but it's really worth listening to the whole thing and kind of focusing on an individual member of the rhythm section, like maybe just one time through when you're listening to this song after this episode, which I do recommend doing. Um, I don't have time to get too into what Evans, Chambers, and Haynes are playing on the rest of this recording, but it is very rewarding to listen to jazz that way, not just this album, but every album, because the accompaniment is every bit as interesting as the solo. But back to the solo. So Freddie's first line was this really laid-back thing, mostly just sitting on G. Let's see what he does when he gets to the four chord. Okay, okay, let's uh, let's slow down and let's just talk about that because there's a lot there. That is quite a phrase. So I'm not going to break that down in too much detail. It is an incredible line. It just, it blows through the whole four chord and then back to the one. And then instead of neatly ending it where he could end, he actually just keeps it going for another bar just to show how long he can keep a single idea in the air. Man, what a good line. All right, listen to him one more time, and I'll play it along with him on piano so you can really hear it. That chorus gives a really good sense of Freddie's approach to this solo. It's a distinct approach. He takes these big, broad, conceptual ideas and builds some phrases around those, like that repeating G where he leaves room for the rhythm section. And then he contrasts those phrases with these laser-focused, ultra-dense lines. They weave through the harmonies like an airbender through wooden training fans. It's a study in contrast and control, a clear and compositional approach that's very different from how the next soloist, Eric Dolphy, approaches his flute solo. So Dolphy's whole approach to improvisation was very different from the other players on this record. I don't want to call him the odd man out, even though he does play oddly compared with everyone else, and he also frequently plays out, so I guess he is the odd man out. But on this record, for my money, the odd man is kind of the one who's in, you know? So as you can hear, Eric Dolphy is playing in this unmoored kind of a way. He's cut himself free from the time, and in places he's cut himself free from the harmony, he's flying much freer than the other soloists do, and it's this really interesting contrast. It's true on the whole record. Some of that is the fact that he's playing flute. Flute is a really fast instrument compared with the saxophone, and saxophone is already a pretty fast instrument. Flute just has so little resistance, though. You can just wing your way up and down it like it's nothing. That leads sax players who are doubling on flute, which Dolphy is doing here, to 
often play a lot faster and looser on the flute than they might on sax. However, with Dolphy, it isn't just a flute thing, it's more just how he approached improvising on this whole record. Like, let's go back to Butch and Butch, this was a tune that I played earlier in the episode. Dolphy's on alto sax here, not flute. Listen to the handoff between Hubbard, who's soloing before Dolphy, and he's largely coloring inside the lines doing his Freddie Hubbard thing, and then Eric Dolphy comes in and begins to solo just like on a completely different planet. Check it out. Sometimes play some semi traditional vocabulary, but it feels volatile and volcanic. It feels like he came into the session with a plan that was just a little bit different from everyone else, and it's super enjoyable. It makes listening to the record very exciting. Even when he's playing inside just for a few bars, at any moment he might explode into this unexpected, you know, screech or scream or altissimo note. Dolphy's playing on blues in the abstract truth is kind of an interesting sign of the times. He's acting as a bridge between the more straight-ahead jazz of the late 50s and the much wilder, weirder, and more abstract improvisational styles that were about to become really popular in the new thing and free jazz movements in the mid and late 60s. It's just one more interesting thing about this record. Back in year two on the Rush episode, I talked about the concept of kite and anchor solos, where the rhythm section provides a solid anchor for the soloist who can be a kite. They can let go of the time, the harmony, they can fly free on the wind. On Blues in the Abstract Truth, Eric Dolphy is the kite. As if to consciously provide as much of a third contrast as possible, Oliver Nelson's tenor sax solo, which comes after Dolphy's flute, that's maybe the most interesting solo on this whole track. It's fascinating. At times it's more like a composed etude than an improvised jazz solo. There's no like bebop vocabulary in it really. It's all just these ideas kind of carved out of blocks of harmonic clay. Like just listen to how Oliver Nelson begins his solo and plays through his first chorus. That's not just an unusual way to begin a solo, it's, it's really its own thing. This is an iconic solo, it's just kind of not like any other solos, even other solos by Oliver Nelson. He's just standing firmly on the floor, establishing and then developing these motifs, and he's just unwavering in how he plays them, and it creates a completely different energy than Eric Dolphy was getting just moments before when he was playing his flute solo. He starts by just clearly, strongly establishing this three-note motif, it's in stacked fourths, a G, a C, and an F. He plays it, and then he plays it again. Then when they go up to the four chord, he plays the same shape with slightly different notes up on the four. And then he restates and slightly embellishes the original motif back on the one. And then for the last four bars, he inverts the phrase, plays a new idea that still feels connected to the first ones, and he ends the phrase. 
is just so distinct. I mean, to me, that opening motif, it kind of calls to mind the three notes that Sonny Rollins used to open his famous solo on Blue 7, which he recorded in 1956. <laughs> What a great solo. So I hear maybe a little bit of that in that opening motif. The Oliver Nelson solo is also, it's a tenor saxophone solo recorded in 1961, which means that it exists in the context of John Coltrane's Giant Steps that had come out a year earlier, and it kind of blew the whole tenor sax jazz solo thing wide open. Train took a kind of similar approach to what Nelson is doing here in his own way. It's this really vertical, motific approach to those famous train changes on Giant Steps. His solo on that tune is so famous and remarkable because it kind of sets aside a established jazz vocabulary in favor of these like repeating sequence shapes over this unusual giant steps harmony it basically established a whole new sort of jazz melodic conception And in that context, Oliver Nelson's solo also feels like a deliberate response, kind of to what Train was doing. Nelson's like, well, I can take the same vertical shape-oriented approach to harmony, but I can slow it way down and I can find beauty in that simplicity, rather than just in raw energy the way that Coltrane did. Nelson actually also uses the augmented scale quite a bit in his solo, which I'm not going to get into that in depth, but the augmented scale is also a key to the harmonic center of Giant Steps. But really, I can hear these echoes of other tenor players in Nelson's Stolen Moments solo, but when it comes down to it, this solo is just its own thing. That whole first chorus was like a perfectly constructed little story on its own, but that's just his first chorus. For his second chorus, Nelson does much the same thing, but he uses a more complex motif. In fact, he just doubles the motif. He kind of folds it on top of itself. The first motif was three long notes. The second chorus motif takes that first motif and doubles it into two groups of three, with each note played more quickly. He develops it similarly too, but he embellishes and complexifies this second motif much more quickly than he did on the first chorus. Listen to how he transitions up to the four chord when they go to the four, and then he just keeps climbing and he keeps building that motif as they return to the one. And he just keeps it going all the way through to the end of his second chorus. Now here he is on his third chorus, introducing yet another new motif, which he then develops on the four chord. Beautiful. What a difference from Dolphy's solo, which was itself so different from Freddie's solo. And it's important to really internalize that. That's one of the great things about jazz and about improvised music in general. These wildly different artists can all coexist in the same creative space. And that's the magic of the music. They can join together, they can play that lush, carefully arranged melody, and then they can split apart and they can each make profoundly different creative statements over the same harmonic framework. That's how you wind up with Freddie Hubbard ending his chorus like this. And then Eric Dolphy playing the same four bars like this. 
And then right after that, Oliver Nelson approaching the same four bars like this. After Nelson's solo, Bill Evans takes a pretty straightforward piano solo. Like I said, I'm not going to get super into it, but it's got some nice lines. Evans kind of re-centers the energy after those three wildly disparate performances from the horn players, and that sets up a return to the melody. One of my earliest jazz listening memories was when my first saxophone teacher, an Indiana University undergrad jazz major named Doug, he sat down and he played this entire recording through for me. I remember that at first I didn't quite get it. The song sounded kind of slow to me. It wasn't the fast kind of burning bebop that I was starting to get excited about. It sounded really restrained. It sounded kind of boring. But then he explained what made the track so fascinating to him, and he got really specific about the players. He got super excited about Freddie's solo, that super long phrase. Hold, man, he's like, listen to this phrase, that's really hard to do. And then Dolphy comes in on the flute and he's flying all over the place. Here comes Oliver Nelson, this composer. Listen to how weird this solo is. People didn't play solos like this. Listen to these ideas here, always repeating himself. It made an impression. I, I don't remember much from when I was like 14 years old, but I remember sitting in Doug's living room and listening to this track with him, getting my first inkling of that mix of individualism and collectivism that makes jazz so special and so, well, so foundational to the American musical story. Oliver Nelson's septet closes out Stolen Moments the way they came in, in beautiful concert with one another, voicing his lush horn harmonies, repeating a single tag on the melody to the end. They've accomplished what they set out to do, combining individual and collective statements into a beautiful musical narrative. The only thing left to do is to end it. One final beautiful chord to say goodbye. That'll do it for my analysis of Oliver Nelson's Stolen Moments, one of the centerpieces of his jazz masterpiece, The Blues and the Abstract Truth. I hope you'll take the time to go and really listen to the recording after this, maybe listen a few times through, focus on different things each time, focus on the rhythm section, the different soloists, and just keep in your mind that what you're hearing is just seven guys in a room playing instruments with the tape rolling. Thank you all so much for listening and for supporting Strong Songs. Thanks, of course, to all of my patrons for financially supporting the show. And thanks to everyone who's been spreading the word, sharing the show on social media, recommending it to people, and just generally helping me find new listeners. I've been hearing from a lot of people lately who've recently discovered the show. That's super cool. And if that's you, welcome. Links for Patreon, social media, the Strong Song store, newsletter, all that kind of stuff. They're down in the show notes. I hope you'll check all of that out. If you'd like to reach out, you can send me an email at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Our next episode will be a listener Q&A episode. So by all means, if you have a musical question that you think I might have fun answering on the show, send it along. 
This episode's outro soloist is me, actually. I recorded a tenor sax outro solo last year. I like to sneak it in there every now and then. Flute is fast and fun, but sax is where it's at. So stick around for that, and I'll be back in two weeks with more Strong Songs.